Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning, church. How we doing? Got lots of books and lots of things up here. My name is Sean, and I am looking forward to spending some time with those of you who are here, those of you who are watching at home. And I I have a note to make sure to say hi to the people that are watching outside. But I just checked, and it's just Julia and Penny and Pete. So, um, (laughs) hi, I love all of you. Um, It's good to good to see you. Uh, If there are other people out there, hello. Come earlier to church and I'll say welcome to you. So uh, before we dive into our passage today, I do want to touch on a few things that uh, Pete talked about in his sermon last week as we kicked off this season of Lent. So if you weren't here last week or you haven't listened to Pete's sermon yet, I encourage that you do check it out. But Pete talked about the importance of our practice of communion, of how we commune with God through prayer. And there are a couple things worth revisiting because I think one of the realities that Pete touched on that certainly struck a nerve with me and I met with a few of you over coffee this week and and talking about it, it was the same thing, was that none of us would say that we are experts at prayer. Like no one would say that. Or maybe that we pray as much as we would like or that it is as natural as we would like it to be. As we continue on in the season of Lent, focusing on a different psalm each week from the lectionary, uh, we recognize that the collection of psalms is, is one of the tools that helps us pray. It offers us the very word of God to use as our own, as a guide as we enter into communion with God through prayer. In addition to that, we had a few other resources we talked about uh, specifically over the course of the remainder of Lent. And the first one here is this prayer book. And this is, we got the fancy brown paper copies out there now too. But uh, this contains daily prayers, weekly prayers, specific psalm references. So even when we're apart, we're unified in praying and, and reading the same scripture. We ran out of those last week. There are more in the back and in the hallway there. Uh, There are family prayers, which I think are maybe on your seats as well. So it's a great thing to use, not just for your family, but in any type of group. Uh, We use it for our staff prayer time. It's been life-giving for us as a staff and for me individually. So there are, again, a bunch more copies. Uh, In terms of other resources, not specifically Antioch, Pete talked about two apps that I think are there on the screen. I've been using that Lexio 365 this week on my commute, like Pete talked about. It's been such a blessing to me in the mornings, and just listen, and it's, it's been really simple. Uh, and then we have a few copies of this book out there, too, called uh, Prayer, 40 Days of Practice by Justin McRoberts and Scott Erickson. Uh, you may know Scott better as Scott the Painter. Uh, his artwork is around our building all over the place, and each week it contains a short, or each day, sorry, contains a short prayer and then a piece of artwork from Scott that's kind of designed to inspire you to meditate on. So if you're a kind of visual person, that's a great resource. And then finally, we talked about this book, How to Pray by Pete Gregg with my like all-time favorite subtitle, A Simple Guide for Normal People find myself to be a mostly normal person, so it's been a, uh, a helpful book for me, and our hope is really that everyone at Antioch would get the chance to read this book this month, whether you're doing that in a group with other folks or you're doing that on your own. 
It is a great resource no matter how comfortable or confident you are with prayer. And again, if you're discussing the group, that's great. Or if you want a place to discuss, I'm going to be facilitating a discussion on April 3rd during the 1045 gathering, hopefully outside in beautiful weather. Otherwise, we'll find another location. So I know that's a lot of different things, but we wanted to make sure that everybody got to hear about those things as we seek to be intentionally formed together as a community this month through the practice of prayer. So... Let's get to it. Today is the second Sunday in Lent, and we're going to be continuing our focus on the Psalms. Pete always says that the Psalms are one of the books of the Bible that are meant to be prayed and not just read. In Hebrew, this book is referred to as the Tehillim, which means praises. It's the book of praises. But that can be a little bit of a misnomer because if you've spent any time in the book of Psalms, you know that the words found in the Psalter are not exclusively praises. It's not all positive. It's not all good things. Oftentimes, they contain people that are angry at God. They're upset at others. They are frustrated with their life circumstances, the way that things are going. So instead, it's best to understand that there are a few different categories or types of psalms. And when we know the type of psalm that we're looking at, it can give us clues to help us understand and use these ancient prayers. Because the reality is, yes, this is a book of prayers, but it is also a book of wisdom. It speaks about the truths of the world, maybe in a similar way to the book of Proverbs. It's not as definitive about theological concepts as other portions of Scripture, but we see in the Psalms as a way, it's a description of the way that things often work. And you've probably heard about the different types of Psalms before, but you'll see why it's especially important as we dive into our text today in just a minute. And listen, if you Google the different types of Psalms, which I obviously did this week, you know, preparation, What are the different categories of psalms? Well, the first one says, here are the four different types of psalms explained. That's like the first hit. And then the next hit's like, the seven types of psalms. And the third one says, 20 different types of psalms. Here's how to understand them all. And you're like, okay, can we get some little consensus here? So uh, there's not really a consensus on it. But So I kind of, again, I'm a simple guy, simple, normal person. I boil it down to kind of three different types of psalms, all right? There are psalms of praises. It's calling people to praise God. Within this category, you can put psalms of thanksgiving. Some people call that their own type, but they're just expressing gratitude for deliverance or answered prayer, a form of praise to me. There are psalms of lament, which can be both individual or communal. Our race in Oregon event a few nights ago was modeled on a psalm of lament. These actually comprise about a third of the entire book of psalms. If you know a fancy old school word like imprecatory, you guys know that word? Oh man, we used to use that word all the time, right? Uh, This is a specific form of lament. And then for me, the other category is just like junk drawer psalms. There are these like random uh, royal psalms and liturgical psalms and entrance psalms. To me, that's like stuff stuff that in the junk drawer, close it, make sure. You know, we're not going to worry about those, okay? So those are junk drawer psalms. And if you ask the folks at the Bible Project, they really say there's two categories of praise and lament. A little bit of an oversimplification, but a helpful framework for us today. And praise psalms may be what we're most familiar with. And in these types of psalms, the author almost always emphasizes that they have a, a close relationship with the Lord, that they are in God's presence. They are prox- proximate to the Lord. These psalms describe God as their refuge, as as God is the keeper of their life. God even providing them shade, that's how close they are to God. They're characterized by Yahweh being near, his presence being felt. 
On the other hand, psalms of lament are characterized by the speaker feeling you know, away from the presence of God. The, the, the author is surrounded by enemies, is suffering from oppression, experiencing torment. Uh, they can't seem to find God. They, they wonder where he is. They wonder when he is gonna show up in the midst of all the challenges they're facing. So why is this important today? Why are we talking about this? Well, you may have noticed when Dave read Psalm 27 just a few minutes ago that this psalm doesn't really fit nicely into one of those boxes. Uh, the psalm begins with the speaker talking about the Lord is my light and my salvation, but it only takes about six verses and everything seems to flip. There's this big juxtaposition where the traits of a praise psalm of, of nearness and confidence in Yahweh is followed closely by the traits of a psalm of lament, of, of feeling distant from the presence of God, of, of wondering where he is. And this contrast is so stark that some scholars actually think that these were two psalms that were kind of stuck together. I don't know if that's the case, but when you look at the arc of the psalm, you kind of want the second section to go before the first one. I mean, that's how you tell a good story, right? You know, you start with desperation. You know, you've lost all hope. And then in the end, you can declare that God is your light and your salvation. That's how stories are supposed to work. But as with most things, it rarely happens in a tidy or neat fashion. And I think that the unique nuances of this psalm and even the structure is going to have something to say to us today. So we're going to look at it in two main chunks, the praise section and the lament section. And then we're going to see how the synthesis conveys some present truths to our reality today. So starting in verse 1, it says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So like many psalms of praise, again, this psalm begins with a strong declaration, a recognition of the close presence of God. The psalm says that it is a psalm of David, which means it was traditionally associated with David being the author. We don't know if that's for sure, so I'm going to generally just say speaker or author or psalmist or whatever, but the speaker recognizes a few things right away. First thing is that the Lord doesn't just give light or salvation, but that he is light and salvation. And as befitting of their close relationship, the speaker says, the Lord isn't just light and salvation in general. He is my light and he is my salvation. The recognition being here that the Lord takes a personal interest in the speaker's life in the world, in the speaker's salvation. And if the Lord is light and salvation to the speaker and, and the stronghold of the speaker's life, then it begs the question, of who am I supposed to be afraid of? You know, if God conquers all the powers of darkness and death with light and salvation, what else does the world or anybody else have to throw at me? Those are kind of the two big things. What else or who else is scarier than that? And I think the, this question from the psalmist uh, might find its most complete answer in one of the more famous passages of the New Testament in Romans 8. The whole chapter is really a Trinitarian answer to this question, but a few verses stick out. 831 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Mimicking the psalmist. 835 says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? 837 says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, 
neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's the full answer to that question. And the psalmist continues over the next few verses talking about their enemies. You know, if this one psalm was written by David, then that certainly fits in with them. We talked about it a few weeks ago. David loves to talk about his enemies, always complaining about his enemies. Find something new to talk about, Dave, okay? So picking up in the text, it says, verse four, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Uh, this verse may sound familiar. Remember that song from the 90s, Better is One Day? You guys remember that one? It's like, one thing I ask and I would seek. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Okay, okay, all right. So that's, you keep going? No, I don't, I don't do that, yeah. Nobody wants me in the worship team. So uh, that is mostly taken from Psalm 84, but they steal a bit here from Psalm 27. And the psalmist says that he only wants one thing. I'm just asking for one thing. And this is kind of an interesting theme that we see throughout Scripture. You know, a couple psalms before this one, that's Psalm 23. It's pretty famous, right? Uh, the Lord is my shepherd. You know what comes next? I shall not want. So if David wrote both of these, he changed his mind pretty quickly. Uh, he went from, I don't need anything at all. Okay, fine. I just need one thing. Okay, just, just one thing. And this idea of one thing kind of repeats itself throughout Scripture here in Psalm 27. In Mark 10, Jesus is talking to the rich young ruler. He says, there is just one thing that you lack. In Luke 10, with the story of Mary and Martha, Jesus says to Martha, only, only one thing is needed. In John 9, Jesus, he heals a man who had been born blind. The Pharisees are investigating it because he performed a miracle on the Sabbath. They question this man who can now see, and they're asking him about Jesus. He says, I don't know whether he is a sinner or not, but one thing I do know. I was blind, but now I see. And here in Psalm 27, the one thing the speaker asks for is to dwell in the house of the Lord, to gaze upon the beauty of God, to live in Yahweh's presence, to be in Yahweh's household, to be under Yahweh's protection. For the speaker, the presence of God is all that matters. It's the only thing, it's the one thing, everything else will figure itself out. Enemies, armies, it doesn't matter if the speaker can only be in the presence of the Lord. And it's this certainty in the presence and the protection of the Lord that distinguishes the speaker's fear of anything else that might come their way. That's the one thing that matters. And then we get to the second half of the psalm. I was having lunch uh, with someone from Antioch this week, and he was telling me he's a big New Year's resolution guy. He's found it super helpful. Uh, and for me, the shift in this psalm is kind of like what happens with every one of my New Year's resolutions, right? Yeah, I'm going to work out every day this year, and then March hits, and it's like not happening. Or I'm going to eat healthier this year, and February hits, and it's not happening. And this psalm starts out like with this big New Year's resolution. I am going to trust God this year. He is my light and my salvation. I've got nothing to be afraid of, not enemies, not foes. Man, I only want one thing. I'm just going to be in the presence of God. That's all I need. And then we get to the second half of the psalm. It's like, why aren't you listening to me, God? 
Why are you hiding your face from me? Please don't reject me. You know, we have this stark contrast. That's why some people think it's two different psalms. So verses one through six, the first half, they, they express this deep confidence in their relationship, in the nearness of the Lord, and the second half is less certain about that relationship, less confident about Yahweh's presence. The text says this. It says, hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. Through my father, though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. So rather than being certain of their enemy's defeat, just a few verses ago, the speaker is now really focused on the enemy. He's worried about being oppressed. He's fixated on the torment. Again, the first half talked about victorious pronouncements and thanksgiving. This now, the psalm talks about problems and petitions. Again, remember the psalmist said they only wanted one thing? Well, in this portion of the psalm, I counted, they asked for nine things. It says, hear my voice, be merciful, answer, from, answer me, do not hide your face from me, do not reject me, do not forsake me, teach me, lead me, do not turn me over to my foes. Again, a pretty quick shift. Psalm 23, I want nothing. <laughs> Psalm 27, a few verses ago, I want one thing. Now it's nine things. By Psalm 50, he's going to want like a thousand things. I'm not a math expert, but I think that's right. And, I, you know, the thing for me is I'm pretty sure we've all had prayers like this. God, if you would just give me this one thing, I'll never ask for anything else again. I just, I just once I get this one thing, you know, we're, I'm going to be set. You, you won't be hearing from me. I'm going to be good. Maybe it was that, that, that test in school, or maybe it was the health of your kid, or, or the hope of a baby, the restoration of a relationship, a family, a spouse. We've all done this. We've all asked for that one thing, and then you know, kind of changed our mind. The psalmist may have started from a positive place. Now they realize that they're in trouble. They've been rejected by their family. They've got haters and enemies surrounding them. They, they can't seem to see or feel God. They're, they're even trying to tell themselves to seek God's face. You gotta do this, you gotta seek God's faith, but nothing seems to be working. And then we see the final two verses of this psalm which say, I will remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. So, again, another tone shift. Psalm, lament, or praise, lament, and we seem to be shifting back again. It's as if the psalmist can't seem to get their emotions straight. They can't decide on one way to feel, which to me is good, because that's what I do. That's what you and I do, right? This, this entire psalm, it maintains gritty honesty as it dances back and forth between fear and trust. That's something that we all do. The psalm, it speaks to those of us who are in the middle. 
If you might be uncertain about the future, maybe, maybe you've had a past experience or, or relationship with God, but you've also had moments and seasons where it hasn't felt the same as it did in the past. Everything doesn't feel as good as it once did. And so this psalm, it, it sits in the tension between the reality of our fears and the assurance of divine help. So yes, it shows us that for the faithful, our fears may be assuaged through the presence of the everlasting God. Sometimes God's presence is clear to us and he will do these things that we ask of him. But it also shows us that that our freedom from fear is affirmed even in the opaqueness of the divine presence when God seems hidden or when God seems obscured. Yes, when God seems obvious, our hopes are vindicated, our fears are squashed, but when God seems hidden too, our hope, it may require a little faith for sustenance, but God is still there and God still meets us in that place when it's harder to see him. So the wisdom of this psalm shows us that we must hold fear and faith and doubt and trust together. Vigorous faith and animated doubt, they, they both insist that we take God seriously, that we, that we ask him real questions and we depend on God in tangible ways. And as we examine those doubts and fears and, and we refine our understanding and, and we illuminate our experience of God and we filter out our beliefs, we can, when we do this, we sift wishful thinking about you know, who we want God to be from the challenging wisdom of who God is. We see that the faithful, we, we live at the intersection of, uh, of religious ideas and religious conceptions in real life. Because it's great to say, like, I'm not worried about my enemies, and then I look outside my door and I'm a little bit worried about them, right? We have high moments of soaring trust with God, but we also have persistent doubts and everything in between. But we can bring all of those feelings in conversation with scripture, in conversation with church tradition, in conversation with our community and the Holy Spirit and see that the Lord is working in it all. See, when our spirituality contains these dualities of, of fear and faith or doubt and faith, we see differently. We can see abundance before scarcity. We can recognize grace before loss. We can notice what's overlooked. We, we don't gloss over real issues or minimize pain or injustice. We know the power of trust and the benefits of doubt in bringing out the best in others and in ourselves. We recognize that we're on a journey of discovery and we never fully arrive and sometimes life is like the first half and sometimes life is like the second half. We can understand that God is there when we feel him or see him, and he's there when we can't see him or feel him. And so these last few verses, they synthesize the the two big sections of the psalm, and they center around patience, because patience is what it takes to hold the highs and the lows of faith together. Dr. Lindsay Armstrong, she's a theologian and a pastor from Atlanta, and I love how she puts it. She says, Patient seeking, patient searching, patient development of spiritual practices that make both faith and doubt meaningful. These give us the time and skills we need to navigate pain, to learn lessons, to gain perspective, and perhaps to even experience the world differently. So when we talked about the weirdness and the duality of this psalm, feeling almost like Two independent ideas joined together in the wrong order. 
I think that the structure of this psalm may be much more true to life for us. Again, early, you know, if we're writing a story, the psalm should be flipped. You start with doubt, you end up in trust and assurance and confidence. God is your stronghold, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> that's how we want stories to work. And not just stories, that's how we want life to work. That's how we want our faith to work. You know, if we, if we truly invite Jesus into our heart, then our, eye, then our lives are going to be, you know, up and to the right, you know, straight prophets in the black, right? Which is great in theory, but you and I live in reality and not theory. We know that that's not true, and that's not how life works. That's not how faith works. It's rarely how the best and most compelling stories work either. Because life and faith tend to be a lot more like Psalm 27. Whether you'd say you've been a follower of Jesus your whole life, made a decision later, or one point decided you were fully committed to the life and love and the teachings of Jesus, I'm pretty sure at one point you felt like the first half of this psalm. You could declare God as your light and salvation. You could ask the question, you know, what else am I supposed to be afraid of? Sure, there might be some bad things or, you know, enemies heading my way, but I'm confident that God will shelter me, that he will protect me, that he'll be my stronghold. You could clearly see and feel God. But my hunch is that you've probably also experienced a lot of the feelings that come in the second half of this psalm also time when God's presence has felt further away, when you've wondered if he's even listening at all or if he's paying attention, and you lost that job or you had to move or you got in that fight with a family member, that relationship ended, the pregnancy test won't come back positive, your kid got sick, your parents got sick, you experienced injustice, you lost someone you loved, or maybe it even wasn't one of those really big things, but just a confluence of many small things, or a feeling of malaise, of seeing God hasn't felt clear in your life or experiencing him. Maybe you're one of the lucky ones and you've never experienced some of those bad things. Maybe life and faith has been up and to the right for you. Maybe you really connect with the first half of the psalm and you don't know what I'm talking about here in this section of lament. But, you know, I'll, I'll talk to people and have a conversation and be like, oh, this person has been through some stuff. Like this person, this person has been in it, or this person is in it. And I don't know why all that list of bad things and the million other bad things happen. That's a whole other sermon on the mystery of theodicy. But when you've experienced the suffering in these dark moments, you have a little bit of a different perspective than someone who hasn't. Doesn't mean that's a bad thing for those folks, but if you haven't walked through the valley or you haven't experienced the dark night, sometimes people can be trite and say, you know, everything happens for a reason. But the person who's been through it and may even be just on the other side may not know why something happened or, or how it could possibly be good, but they do know that God was in it with them. Maybe part of the wisdom of this psalm is that the confidence and the patience that comes at the end can only happen after going through the difficult and challenging stuff and the raw questioning and the raw seeking of God in the midst of it, of not hiding how you feel about it, but being honest. 
And the hope is that as we bring our faith and our doubt, our positive, our negative, our confidence and our wondering, we can echo the words of the psalmist and say, I will remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. And we might fully believe those words when we say them, but it also kind of feels like the psalmist is kind of talking to himself here, trying to convince himself to believe it. Maybe, maybe I don't fully believe it right now, but if I remain patient, God has been faithful to me and he will be faithful again. And maybe we can only really believe that if we've experienced the highs and the lows of walking with God. So we see that, you know, this psalm, it begins with kind of a, an untested, it feels like, a naive bravado that, that hey, the Lord is my light and salvation. Doesn't matter about anything else that could ever happen to me. I'm so confident of this. And then they experience life. And it doesn't seem as rosy or as positive and the enemies seem closer or scarier and the bad stuff seems to be coming more and more frequently. But in the end, even in the midst of the challenges and in the uncertainties that the psalmist faces, the psalm concludes with a note of certainty that is based on who God is and what God has done. So, Antioch, may we be a people who bring our honest and our raw prayers to God, whether they are praises, praises of thanksgiving, or whether they are frustration or prayers of lament. May we remain confident that we will see the goodness of God And may we be strong and take heart as we wait patiently in expectation for the Lord. Amen. Now, Pastor Amy is going to come up and lead us through the practice of communion together.